Today, we're going to pick up in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul begins uh, asking some rhetorical questions, and they begin like this. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? As a follow-up to a reminder of what the cross means, the implications of the cross for our lives, now Paul turns and asks, so in light of that, where is the one who is wise? Right? And he begins calling out these supposed experts in the world. Um, the first one being those that might be either described by or self-described by their wisdom, right? Where is the one who is wise? These are those who are esteemed, lifted up for their knowledge, right? They know things. Um, they know things that the everyday person doesn't. And they, they possess the quality of expert or a person possessing informed opinion, right? Esteemed for their knowledge. The second group of people, the teachers are the experts in the law. Paul says, where are they? In light of the cross, where is the teacher? Where is the expert in the law? These are those who are esteemed for their position of the authority. Uh, they were recognized not only for their expertise on matters of religious devotion in life, but they were also actually given a platform to instruct us, right? And so we, again, we hold them up. And then thirdly, he calls out, the debater or the philosopher of this age. These philosophers, they were esteemed for their novelty. They were the kind of people that um, could offer into the conversations new dimensions or angles, right? They, uh, we know that this was true of so much of the culture that was entrenched in this quest for knowledge and wisdom that they love more than anything else. They love some new thing, right? Probably not so different from us today. Constantly looking for that new thing. They'd propose questions, um, abstractions. You know, often they'd call into question anything that hints of structure, right? Any structures that were set up. Whether those structures might be good or bad for society, every single one of them, by the sheer fact that they were, in essence, a kind of structure, they, they would call those things into question. Um, oftentimes, with the end in mind, to dismantle those structures. How much do we see that going on in our world today? The worst thing for these debaters, these philosophers, these, these people that came in with new angles, new slants, new takes, the worst thing for them would be to only rehash what had been previously known, right? Because what is traditional is outdated. What is of yesterday is boring, right? There was no, there was no uh, appreciation for the, the historicity or the value of old things, right? It was always about the new things. And so Paul he calls out, where is the debater, the philosopher, in light of the message of the cross? And so these experts, so to speak, they, 
They may be, they may be learned um, and wise and shrewd and novel. When, when it comes to matters pertaining to this age, but Paul is interested in what it means to be wise concerning the age that is to come. And so he asks this question. He said, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? God, in the way he often does things, just turns upside down, right? The, what is held up as the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age, God has made it foolish. In other words, God renders useless every tool, every advantage, and every privilege that the world can produce. God takes all of those things and he renders them as utterly useless when it comes to knowing God and understanding the implication of the cross. He what God does is he dismantles the wisdom of the wise, turns it on its head. He usurps the power of the powerful. We see Jesus oftentimes doing this, instructing us that the empires of this world act in certain ways and employ certain methods for not only gaining, but also holding on to and maintaining their power. But then Jesus says, but, but we're going to do it differently. Now, how do you tear down an empire? Well, historically, you undermine it, either by coming against it with an even stronger empire. How many times have we seen power exchange hands through military dominance? You undermine it by um, getting in on the inside and dismantling it from the inside out, right? Like empires come and go, but with the cross, in one fell swoop of selfless love and sacrifice, Jesus tore down the force the empire has and imposes on those who would determine to follow Jesus instead. So he destroys the power of the powerful. He devalues the currency of wealth. In a world where money can buy you practically everything, money can practically get you anywhere or give you access to about any area that you want, Jesus devalues the currency of wealth. Like we can't impress God with our wealth. We can't draw closer to God as a byproduct of the wealth that we have accrued. He dismantles the classes of privilege. We see Jesus making equals out of those who had been ranked in value by the particular class that they happen to fall in, right? Because what society does is it segregates people and assigns or ascribes to them value based on um, any number of things. Uh, sometimes it was whether they were a man or a woman. Sometimes it was based on um, what tribe you happen to belong to or what was your ethnic heritage. Um, what was your status of citizenship for those that were part of the empire of Rome 
right? The citizen of Rome was uh, a class that was valued higher than the non-citizen. And below that even was the slave, right? So you had, you had all these various classes assigned to people, but in the cross, everybody is made equal. And so Jesus dismantles the classes of privilege. So the cross epitomizes God acting in exactly the way that we would never, ever, ever, ever expect. And so in that, the gospel is unlike anything else, right? Paul says the cross is not accessible through human wisdom. Meaning the cross is is never going to be the conclusion that you and I are going to come to on our own. Like if we're going to try to figure it all out, right, and we work to piece everything together, the conclusion none of us are going to arrive at is the solution that God provides to the world, the salvation that God provides to the world through the cross. We're never going to come up with it that way because the cross is not accessible through human wisdom. And this is why the gospel is so unlike anything else. The the pure gospel is unlike anything else you'll find out there. There's nothing like it, right? Because everything else is the product of our intuition or of our wisdom or of the varied experiences that individuals have. But the gospel is holy and utterly unlike any of any of those things. Think about what the gospel presents. It presents to us the incarnation of Jesus. That is the humble act of God taking on himself the weakness of human flesh. Who would have come up with that? Right? In a world that is obsessed with power and authority and dominance, who would have ever guessed that the all-powerful God of the universe would humble himself and take on the form of human flesh, that he'd become like us? That he would so empathize with our plight and our need for salvation that the very way in which he would save us would be to come as one of us? Who would have thought? Human wisdom doesn't arrive at that conclusion. Nor does it arrive at the conclusion of how we might sort of encapsulate the ministry of Jesus. The fact that he humbly associated with the outcast and the powerless. That he ascribed worth and value to the poor and to the oppressed. Or the death of Jesus. We talked about this last week. How the cross encapsulates the most humiliating way to die. Right? Again, we're talking about God, how he in humility brings salvation to the world. What more humiliating way could there have been for someone to die but the cross? And what does Jesus do but humble himself? and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that all will be made right. The gospel is unlike anything else. 
And because of that, the gospel is likely to stand in contrast to and often stand alone against any other appeals of wisdom. And so this is why Paul says that it is not through the wisdom of the world that God has brought us salvation. We go on in verse 21, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So now, God, now Paul, he, he draws our attention to God's wisdom. And he says, first of all, the world did not know God through wisdom. And this is huge. This cannot be overstated, right? The fact that the world is wholly incapable of knowing God through its own appeal to and search of wisdom. Now, the problem isn't with rational thought, right? The, the problem isn't that to believe in what, um, what are the claims of the gospel that we have to abandon every form of intelligence like in order to embrace those things that we just talked about. The problem isn't when ra with, with rational thought, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, the only way that you can actually, um, you can be religious, the only way that you can actually uh, have a relationship with God is like, you have, to, you have to surrender yourself to some form of irrationality, right? Right, because it's just, all, all those, those aspects of the gospel that I just pointed out, they're all irrational, in, in, the, in the conventional sense of human wisdom, they're all irrational. But it isn't rational thought that's the problem. The problem also isn't the simple message that the cross um, fails when people ask tough questions, right? The problem with, uh, with Christianity isn't that it is unable to sit in a space where people have really, really, really tough questions. Like Jesus, Jesus isn't afraid of even our toughest questions. The problem with the wisdom, we talked a little bit about this last week, but the problem with the kind of wisdom that Paul has in mind, it, 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 it's this attitude. It's this attitude of inflated pride or a, a, a certain kind of thinking style that just puts too much trust in oneself or puts too much trust in humanity to arrive at the right answers. How many of you want for someone to just feed you the answers? Right? You ever find yourself having to think really, really hard about something, and you want it for nothing more than some expert to just, will you just tell me? Just give me the answer, right? Because um, if we feel like our questions have been satisfied, then we, we feel like we can then move on. But there's so many that, that and we, I, think, I think we all are guilty of this from time to time, of having, of possessing this kind of attitude that, um, like, I know better than. Now, how many of you would ever say out loud, I know better than God? Any? Right. None of us would say that out loud. How many of you have acted 
or thought in such a way that was as if I know better than God. Anybody? Anybody done that? Yeah. Right? Like, we, we, we often, we place too much pride or trust or confidence in ourselves or in, uh, in humanity, right? The droves of, of, of human beings in this world today have put all of their trust in the bucket of relying on the wisdom of this world to come up with the right answers. Then there are those who, um, who think that the right answers aren't even important. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not very popular to be a religious person. Um, certainly not very popular to be like, you know, what somebody might call a fundamentalist religious person. Nor is it super popular to just, you know, to be a, uh, an absolute atheist, right? That no room, like no room for anything other than the natural world. No room at all for any kind of idea of something like God, right? And so um, neither of those camps are particularly popular. You know who is really popular? It's the camp of the agnostic, right? Uh, how many of you have had conversations that, like when they started to kind of delve into the realm of the spiritual or the religious, uh, the other person just sort of conceded Maybe, maybe not. Like, I don't know. But that's what, that's agnosticism, right? That's the agnostic um, claims that we can't know. There's just, there's just so much that we can't know. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to really bother myself with the burden of trying to know. This person, when it comes to matters of God and religion, wants to play Switzerland, Neutral. But we, the idea of we can't know at the heart of that is really a false humility. It, it sounds humble. How could I know? How could anyone know? But, but because of the cross, because of how God has interjected himself and revealed himself into our world, we can't know isn't actually good enough anymore. It's a false humility. See, what the cross does is the cross compels us toward something. It compels us either toward embracing and surrendering to Jesus as Lord or dismissing and rejecting him. And so for the agnostic, Minimally, they are just being dismissive of what the cross is compelling us toward. You know, we come to something like this, people are often asking, and maybe some people ask the question, um, yeah, but what about, what about all the people that haven't heard the proclamation? 
What about the people who haven't heard the gospel? What about the people who haven't heard about the cross? Like, what about them? And you know what? It's a good question. What about them? For us in the room today, I would just say, let God worry about them. You're not one of them. Right? Because you've heard. You have been compelled by the cross either toward embracing and surrendering to Jesus or dismissing and, in essence, rejecting him. So knowing God isn't a product of our wisdom, right? Like it's not our wisdom that ultimately concludes into a knowledge of God. In fact, Scripture tells us that fear or respect of God is the beginning of wisdom. Like this is, the journey starts, the journey of knowing God, the journey of actually having wisdom, of, of starting at and growing in wisdom begins with a fear or respect of God, not the other way around. Knowing God isn't about feeling around to find what best suits you, right? Which in the smorgasbord kind of, um, way that we, we moderns tend to want to live life, right? To, to pick and choose from what is offered. Um, we love the idea of just being able to kind of feel around. And if you wander in stores, I, there, are, there are times when I go to a store with a mission, which is why I'd never go to the store with my wife. You know what? We need to stop at the store and get grapes means. Doesn't mean I'm going to go into the store and go as far as the produce aisle where the grapes are sold and then go to the counter, right? No, I'm going to, I'm going to want, I'm going to, all of a sudden we've got a car full of groceries, right? Uh, but there are times, so I, a lot of times I, I have a mission, but there are other times where I just, like, I'm just wondering, you know, I, I, I need stuff. I need stuff to eat. And so I just, I kind of wander around and, and what a great world we live in where there's just all kinds of things that I didn't even think about that are available at my fingertips, right? If it looks good, if it appeals to me in the moment, then I can, I can take it. And so many of us, we, we, we tend to walk around life like this, this, you know, I'm just, I'm going to feel my way around. I'm going to gather to myself what most appeals to me, what is most attractive to me. Because again, the world's wisdom says, well, we can't know. And so our, our quest, uh, if, if you even care to take on the quest of, of knowing God or, or attaining wisdom, it, it has a tendency to continue in a space of the subjective or the abstract, right? Or in this place of mystery. And it just, it, it leaves everyone, it leaves each of us to our own conclusion, right? That, that we each can kind of come up with and assemble for ourselves, what most suits us. Christian teaching contradicts this, though. Christian teaching t- 
tells us that we can know. That there are things we can know if we will but accept and receive what has been given to us. Now, let's be careful, because a lot of people, uh, uh, a lot of, um, again, very like fundamentally religious people have a tendency to know everything. Right? They take, we can know, to, well, I know everything. Right? There's, a, there's a sort of absoluteness, a, a rigid absoluteness to what we can know. And so it's important to point out that when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, there are things that we can know about God. It's just we can't contain them. <laughs> you see, we can, we can be introduced to concepts like God's unconditional love, for instance. And we can use words like that to try to describe God's unconditional love. So we can know that God is a God of unconditional love. What we can't do is we can't actually contain that. Like, I, I, I can't actually, truly understand the depth of what uncondition, the unconditional love of God for every single person actually looks like. And so, oftentimes, we often fall short of expressing God's unconditional love. Or we can be introduced to the idea of the perfect and magnificent holiness and otherness of God. Right? So, God reveals himself to us as holy and magnificently holy. That's interesting, right? Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, completely and magnificently. Holy, H-O-L-Y. And other, right? God is not, he is not one of us. <laughs> he isn't. God is wholly other than what we are. God is uncreated and we are the created. Um, and so, again, we can, we can be introduced to the idea of it, but we can't, and, and we can accept it. We can accept this revelation of God, but what we can't do is we can't actually contain it. And so what happens is we often fall short of being arrested by the magnificence of God's holiness. And, and, and we're tempted to squeeze God back into the box that we have already prepared for him. And so this is all part of like it. Knowing God isn't a product of our wisdom because God is a real and absolute being. You know, before Bill Belichick ever said, it is what it is, God said, I am what I am. He's the great I am. Did we not sing that just a few moments ago? And so we are wholly dependent on God's self-revelation if we are ever to know him. And so God has decreed that we might believe right? These are Paul's words, that we might believe by the foolishness of what is preached. Some have chosen to abandon this track and to, to take what has been made known about God and try to return it back to the realm of mystery, 
to make knowing God less about submitting to what God has revealed about himself and more about discovering for oneself what God might be, right? And that's a dangerous move. Again, I I don't want to have or possess the attitude that because I can know that then I do know everything, but neither do I want to just resolve to, well, I can't really know anything, and so I'll just push any appearance of actual knowledge, right? Because God has revealed himself. He is who he is. And God has chosen to upset this world by saving us who will believe by the foolishness of what is preached. Now, not only is the message not what we would have expected, right? The message of Christ crucified. Not only is that what the human world would not have expected, but so is the delivery mechanism. Verses 22 and 23, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. There's this word family that Paul uses of, um, how we, we would translate the words, this word family, as um, preaching, preacher, or what is preached. And the preacher, in Paul's mind, is something more like a herald than a sage, right? The, sage of, the sages of this world, they act as a, a, a repository for wisdom because they're thought to have attained wisdom. And, and 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 prospects want to know what their perspective is on certain matters. The herald, however, is a simple messenger that conveys a message, a proclamation directly from the one who has authority over him or her. It's not that in the preaching of what is preached... (laughs) right? In the proclaiming of what is proclaimed, it isn't that we don't take into consideration the, you know, uh, styles and cultures and, and whatnot, but the, the preacher's main concern, it's not, well, how do I rewrite this or how do I repackage this to make it more palatable for people or to make it more persuasive? In other words, how do I, how do I refashion this so that I can grow a bigger church? How do I make this more attractive? Right? That's not the main function of the preacher. The preacher as a herald, his or her main priority is to deliver the message. I mean, you've seen it. Right? The herald shows up, rolls out the scroll, and reads it. Right? Just yells it. Rolls it back up, and off they go to the next place. And what is the message? Well, the message is Christ crucified. Paul says, the Jews, they ask for signs, the Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And so Paul here, he highlights, I think, two responses that people have to this message, Christ crucified. The two responses are this, the Jews were offended And the Greeks were unimpressed. And I wonder, can we see ourselves in either of these camps when it comes to the message, Christ crucified? 
Is that message essentially an offense to us? Or is it unimpressive? And Paul goes on, he says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The Jews, they wanted compelling proof, right? We, we saw this highlighted in the Gospels. They go to Jesus, they say, show us a sign, right? You, you, uh, not, not, that, not that Jesus ever really came right out and said, I am the Messiah, everybody follow me now. Right? But people were ascribing messianic implications toward his ministry. And so the religious leaders would come to Jesus and say, show us a sign. Show us that you're from God. In other words, if you don't show us a sign, we're not going to believe or, in or, or follow you. Right? They wanted compelling proof. Their idol was power. Um, to them, God is all-powerful, which they are right about. But as far as they were concerned, God was always powerful on their behalf. The church is a mess when it moves away from Christ crucified to this place where it becomes so enamored with the power of God but the power of God only as it is demonstrated as being powerful on its behalf. And so this is why we see oftentimes like all kinds of abuse happening in certain cultures of religion. Um, I just recently watched this little docu-series on um, one such kind of cultic movement that leveraged power over its adherence. It was obsessed with authority and power and power structures and authoritative systems, so much so that the humiliation of Christ crucified was holy and utterly lost. And everything came back to power. This is, a, this is not the kind of church you want to go to, right? The, this is, this is a, talking about a messy church, right? A messy church that's what's obsessed with power. Um, that power becomes an idol. So that was the Jews. The Jews, they wanted, they wanted signs of power. The Greeks, however, they, they wanted, um, as lovers of wisdom, they wanted affirmation for their intellectual pursuits. Their, their idol was wisdom, the attaining of wisdom. And everything about and revolving around Wisdom, the investigation of some new thing, the endless arguments of the various wisdom camps, all vying for supremacy over and against the other. Who is most wise? Wisdom was their idol. And so they were seeking affirmation for their own intellectual pursuits. Now, we know God is all-wise, but a problem occurs when God's wisdom starts to look very similar to our own wisdom. The church becomes a mess when it tries to outsmart God. 
again, when it moves away from the central message of Christ and Christ crucified and tries to be smarter or more clever to take the simplicity of that message, powerless as it may seem to the Jew, foolish as it may seem to the Greek, to repackage that into something else. Because it might become more appealing. Paul says, no, Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. And so Christ crucified, right, this message of Christ crucified, it tears down our two idolatries of pride, the idolatry of power, the idolatry of our own wisdom. Christ crucified is a sort of return to first principles. And so we ask, or should ask ourselves this morning, will I, will I stop clutching onto my own power Will I cling to the crucified Messiah? Will I share in the suffering and the agony of his death? And will I rest in the hope of his resurrection? We might ask ourselves also, will I be washed away by the wisdom of this world? Will I be tossed to and fro by the waves of change or the next new trendy thing? Will I be ashamed, when it comes down to it, will I be ashamed of the message of Christ crucified when the world finds it to be unsatisfactory? How will I respond to the message of the cross?